Hello, and welcome to another episode of Whole and Complete Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Shantae, and Whole and Complete is all about faith and wellness, loving God and living well. So for those of you who have been following along, this season is just rolling right on, is it not? We are already, I think, at like episode seven of season three, and we are in the middle of a series of series. We are doing a series on relationships. And so we just closed out our relationship with food series, which I just totally loved and enjoyed. And now we are pivoting into our relationship with money. I got to be honest with you guys. Money is so huge. (laughs) Like people have built their entire platforms just on financial planning, financial advice, financial services, what to do with it. Just it's so much and it has been a challenge to really try to condense a whole lot of information into three tiny episodes, but I will do my best to do it some justice and I will get right into that right now. So uh, we are kicking off the relationship with money series. And as always, we have a guiding scripture for this series coming from first Timothy chapter six, verses 17 and 19, which says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy six seventeen and 19. So let me tell you, I don't know if you guys know this. I'm not sure if I've ever shared this, but I'm not terribly big into Christmas traditions as it were, but there is definitely one tradition that has pretty much held fast in my family. Ooh, probably like for the past decade, like literally we've been doing this for, I think about 10 years with the exception of last year, because everything was closed and the pandemic and blah, blah, blah. But Every single year for the past decade, me, my mother, and my daughter have gone to see A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It is our favorite play. We go to see it either downtown in Chicago or we see it at one of the local theater houses in the Chicago suburbs. But some way, shape, or form, we press our way, butts in the seats, to go see A Christmas Carol. In fact, one year, I bought my entire family. It was like 20 people tickets to see a Christmas Carol. And that was everybody's Christmas gift. And it is my annual reminder about the limitations of money and what our obligation to mankind really is. In fact, there is a quote out of that play as Ebenezer is coming to himself at the end and realizing that he was miserly and he was mean and that he should have done better and he should have been kinder. And as he's sitting there lamenting his choices, he says something that has always stuck with me. And it was this, he said, mankind was my business because he always thought that being a good man of business, you know, commerce, finance was the pinnacle of life. And at the end, he comes to the realization, he says, no, mankind was my business. And I have 
love that quote so much so that truth be told, I'm probably going to get it tattooed on me at some point. So I have one tattoo. I know dun dun dun. Dr. Shante has a tattoo. I have one tattoo on my forearm, my right forearm, which says vivo sine temore, which means I live without fear. And I really, really got to be committed to something to get a tattoo. I mean, because it's not like I started doing the tattoo thing at a young age. Like I was well into adulthood when I got this tattoo. In fact, this tattoo was just barely a year old. I got it like last year in June. And of course, once you get one, you always want others. And I said, I don't think that I would ever really be into like the graphic picture type tattoos. Words are just so powerful and meaningful to me. And I think that if I were ever to get another one, I think that that quote, mankind was my business would probably be the one because I think it really captures not only what the play is about, but it also captures who I am and what, what I'm about. Mankind is my business. That's what I, I, as a teacher, as a podcaster, as a professor, as a speaker, as someone who has sought out to positively impact the lives of hundreds of thousands, million people, mankind is my business. And so I digress. And I think that that scripture that I just read really kind of like drives that home. But Moving along, today we are going to be talking about the real power of money. So we're going to be talking about the history of money a little bit, okay? Some historicity is is in order here. The power of perception and bad romance, part one. So here we go. Money history. So as we are wont to do at the beginning of every series, we have definitions, right? And so it's the same definition from the previous series because we're talking about relationships. So to remind anybody who's coming to this podcast for the first time, a relationship is the way in which two people, two objects, or two concepts are connected. And so what we're going to be talking about in this series is the way in which you are connected to money. How did that happen? What messages did you receive that have shaped and formed your perceptions of and your relationship with money? And I think it's really important to ground this part of the relationship series in a bit of history because money is such a powerful construct in the modern economy that it would be useful for us to have some context about what money really is and what it is not. So depending on who you ask, people will tell you that money does not really exist that all money is, is a series of zeros and ones floating around in cyberspace. Other people will tell you that money is simply an expression of energy that we use to support our lives. And you might be thinking, okay, that sounds kind of out there. And you know, that, that's, that sounds cool and all, but, um, try telling that to my landlord (laughs) or the utility company, you know, because when the bills are due, ain't nobody trying to hear about, well, you know, what is money? It's really just like zeros and ones and energy, you know, floating out there. And they're going to be like, mm-hmm, run that check. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to get served this eviction notice. You can get out of this apartment and we'd be cutting off of your light. And this is where I think a little bit of history comes into play because money as we know it now did not always exist, ladies and gentlemen. It did not. Money as a concept of payment has been in circulation for more than 3,000 years. So the concept, okay, of money, of commerce, has been around for a long, long, long time. But Visa did not exist 3,000 years ago, or Wells Fargo, or the stock exchange. An economy, just simple version, like simple definition of an economy. An economy is the system by which people buy, sell, and exchange goods and services. I want to repeat that. An economy 
is the system by which people buy, sell, and exchange goods and services. So historically, people used to barter, okay? The farmer might exchange a bushel of wheat in exchange for some new shoes from the cobbler, or people traded animal skins for tools, or they traded spices for fabrics, or they traded oil and natural resources in exchange for access to waterways and tributaries. In other words, as societies and cultures evolved, so did the currency, okay? The value of the currency, the, the, the methodology, so whether it was the animal skins or the spices or the oils or the fabrics or whatever, the value of the currency was always contingent on the needs and the demands of the culture. So as the needs and the demands of the culture changed, guess what? So did the currency. And to put this in perspective, and I'm just to give you a heads up, this is an extreme example, but just just follow along with me here. So say, for example, you own a Tesla, right? And Tesla is an expensive car. You're going to pay somewhere between oh, 60 and $100,000 for a Tesla. And you find yourself stranded out in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. You are out of food. You are out of water. And you are completely at the mercy of the elements and the indigenous people of the land and as you're trying to communicate with these people and you try to tell them hey I got a Tesla back at home and I will totally give you that car if you just give me some food and water and shelter well let's put that in perspective in a developed nation in modern society in the west for sure that sounds like a good deal but in this context out in the Amazon Is that a good deal for the indigenous people if they, you know, give food, water, shelter in exchange for a Tesla? Uh, No. What they going to do with that? What they going to do with a Tesla? What what purpose does it serve? Absolutely none. So it's not a good deal for people who have learned to live and thrive completely devoid of first world economic systems. A Tesla in that economy has absolutely zero value. It is completely worthless in that scenario. And that's kind of my point. My point is that the only power or value that money has and has ever had is the power that we humans personally have assigned to it in the context of the culture in which we live. And I really cannot underscore how important it is for you to grasp this very simple truth because money is only as valuable as we believe it to be, period. Money is only as valuable as we believe it to be. And before you can even begin to interrogate your relationship with money, you have to understand that it has limits. You have to understand what it is and what it isn't, what it can do and what it can't do. The richest men in the world, the Elon Musk, the the Jeff Bezoses, the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffetts, the Robert Kiyosakis, the Mark Zuckerbergs have one great equalizer, okay? And the one great equalizer isn't like, oh, I'm worth 60 billion and now you're worth 55. That is not the one great equalizer. It's not the money. They each have, each one of them. And I'll even throw Steve Jobs in there, you know, who has already kind of made this transition each of them has a an appointment with destiny, okay? Their dates of expiration have already been marked in Kairos. Their death date has already been assigned. It's out there. Who knows when it's going to come about, but it is absolutely out there. And there is no amount of money 
no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of influence, nothing in their possession, nothing in their worldly pursuits that is going to allow them to buy their way, finagle their way, shimmy their way, influence their way out of it. At some point, death is the great equalizer, right? Like at some point for all that they have and all that they've accumulated and all that they've done and all the ways that they've impacted the world, at some point, they're going to take that dirt nap. And I hate to be like morbid and just kind of about that, you know, not that I'm like, you know, trying to spur that on, but it's just the truth of the matter. And Mark, so the book of Mark chapter eight, verse 36, this is a very familiar verse says, you know, for what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And I bring this up because many of you who listen to this podcast are believers and the Bible is very clear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm going to repeat that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means that this world belongs to God and everything in it belongs to God. Money has no eternal value. None. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. It's like, it's not like you could be like a billionaire on earth and then get to heaven and be like, all right, what them court size seats hitting for? Like <laughs> it don't work like that at all. Like it totally does not work like that. And the way in which you spend your money on earth really has very little currency in heaven because going back to our original guiding scripture, it's like, were you rich in good deeds? Was mankind your business? Or were you corrupt? Were you shady? Were you cooking the books? You know, like those types of things are the things that are going to matter at that point. But in terms of like actual eternal value, it doesn't have any. And, you know, you can live for 80, 90, 100 years. What is that compared to eternity? And you might be thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, but I'm not in eternity, okay? I'm right here, right now with real bills and a real need to have money in the bank. And you're right. You are absolutely right. That is a valid point. And, not but, and my point is the money that you are relying on today could completely change tomorrow, we went from gold and silver to paper dollars. And then we went from paper dollars to plastic cards. And now we talking about crypto and Bitcoin and Dogecoins. And, you know, you're not you personally, you're not making the money and you're definitely not making the rules. OK, man has historically and consistently proven himself to be unreliable and easily corruptible when it comes to matters of money. So for believers, okay, specifically talking to believers right now, where does it make the most sense to place your trust and reliance in the power of money, which changes with the wind of which you have no control or in the power of God who has committed to believers never to leave or forsake his children, which brings us to the power of perception. If I had more money, think about that. Think about that because I think it's something that we tend to ruminate on quite a bit, right? Man, if I had more money or if I had an extra $10,000 or man, if I had, you know, whatever, you know, if I had more money, like what would you do with it, right? And this is interesting. Like I cannot wait for the economic reports and fallouts at, to come 
from all of these economic stimuli that have been jumpstarting the economy, right? People have pulled down some hefty checks during this pandemic, okay? I mean, some hefty checks, $1,000 here, $1,500 there, $2,000 here. And if you have some kids, whoo-chee, you have really been raking it up. I'm talking about like a stripper. You know, you got two, three kids and the government hitting you down with like $250, $300 a month per kid. You have really been raking in the dough. So more money, it'll be interesting to see when the reports shake out five years from now, you know, what did people actually spend that money on? And Perception is very powerful when it comes to money. So the power of perception, there are so many varying perceptions of what money is, what money does, what it can buy, and what it means, right? So next week, we're going to be talking about how money is emotional. Just like we talked about the ways that food is emotional, money is extremely emotional, But for this week, I would like to focus on our perceptions and some of the messaging that we receive about money. And I would actually like to start with the fellas, okay? Now, I know that we live in an age of fluid gender roles and things like that, but I'm just talking about some of the traditional approaches to money specifically where men are concerned. And in some regards, I actually feel sorry for the men. It's so funny that I've had conversations with single men and single women about the prospect of marriage, right? And I speak to a lot of single women and they're like, oh, I can't wait, you know, one day somebody's son, you know, to be a wife and this, that, and the third. And men do not have in general that same level of enthusiasm because while women might be looking at it from a perspective of like love and romance and family and all of that, a lot of men tend to look at marriage as like, ooh, mm, that is a hefty financial obligation, you know, to have to be in charge, quote unquote, of, you know, the family as it were. And even though nowadays, you know, usually both spouses are working and and that sort of thing, but those traditional expectations hang and loom very large. Those things are still very much out there. And, you know, to an extent, I do feel sorry for the brothers because modern society basically equates a man's pocketbook to his value in the world. Cardi B got a song out saying broke men don't deserve no cookies. I know that's right. You know, so like her whole perception is like, if you broke, you don't, you don't deserve my, my love and and kindness and attention. You don't deserve any uh, affection as it were. And men are taught from a very young age, you know, that romance without finance is a nuisance. They are taught that money is power. It's what makes you who you are. And many of us, not just men, but many of us are taught by our parents that our thoughts and our opinions don't really matter much because we're not the ones paying the bills. We are taught that when you have no money, you have no worth. We are taught that when you have no money, you have no voice. We are taught that there is nothing worse than being poor. And I have a a soft spot in my heart because I don't know if you all know this. I think I shared this last season that I spent like all last summer uh, rereading all the works of Jane Austen. And Jane really was ahead of her time because back in those days, the only way that a woman could establish any sort of station in life, any sort of financial footing 
was through marriage. She was not allowed to hold property or wealth or her own bank account and that sort of thing. And nothing, It if you read those novels, the thought or the prospect of being poor or destitute or without a husband was just like a death sentence, you know? And so even that, those perceptions are still looming large. And we are taught also that if we don't work, you know, if we don't earn our keep, then we are a dreg of society, that we are a freeloader, that we are losers. We are judged by the kinds of cars that we drive, the kinds of schools that we attend, the kind of homes that we live in and the neighborhoods. And we believe that if we just had more money, many of life's problems and stresses would just dissolve and fade into oblivion. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but there are some things that money just cannot buy. I understand that those perceptions are out there and I understand that they are longstanding and still circulating, but money cannot make somebody love you. Okay. Like that's one of those things that money cannot buy. You know, there's that song. I can't make you love me. If you don't, I can't make the heart feel something that it won't. Yeah. There are a lot of people that are in relationships with people who have money, but their hearts are very far from them. It's like, I'm not here for you. I'm just here for the for the cash, for the lifestyle, for the check. Money cannot turn a house into a home. It can supply the financial capital to fill it with some nice things, you know, some nice quartz countertops, but it won't provide the emotional capital that comes from having a lovely fam- loving family inside the house. It can create Instagram worthy posts, okay, and have all kinds of people like ooing and eyeing about the things that you've shared, but it can't make people actually like you, okay, for who you are instead of what you have. Money can pay for lavish vacations, but it cannot keep your spouse from cheating on you emotionally or physically. Money can pay for therapy, but it cannot do the work of healing if you're not willing to engage that effort. It can buy your kids toys and games and PS4s and PS5s, but it doesn't necessarily make you a good parent, okay? Money can't cure your depression. It can't make somebody care enough about you to come see about you when you get sick. And back in the uh, Believing Bigger days, like my old podcast, I was very unabashed about my love, my deep abiding love for the Old Testament because, huh, If you have never read the Old Testament of the Bible, you should, because there's some scandalous stuff happening out there. I mean, scandalous. Every iteration of any sort of like sci-fi fantasy genre that you have seen, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or whatever, that stuff is like plagiarized almost verbatim straight out of the Bible. Like, The Bible, the Old Testament is like really an OG with like a lot of these concepts that are making money today but my favorite king in the old testament was hezekiah like if there's such a thing as like an old testament crush woof, hezekiah would definitely be that king and second kings okay chapter 20 i want to read these these verses to you and kind of illustrate this perspective that i've been talking about and king hezekiah was a good king and it says in those days became ill and was at the point of death The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Verse two, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and has done what is good in your eyes. 
and Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse four, before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David says, I have heard your prayers and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now on, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And I offer this to you because here's the thing, right? So Hezekiah was one of the good kings. So the book of Kings, first and second Kings is really kind of like a chronology of like all the good and bad kings of like, Judah and Jerusalem and Hezekiah for all of his faithfulness Hezekiah for all of his riches for all of his money when his time was up baby his time was up and all he could do was turn his face to the wall and cry and pray (laughs) and I offer this to you because In no way am I trying to discourage you from making money. In no way am I trying to shade you for wanting money. I just think it's prudent to remind you, certainly believers, that money has limitations. That money only has the kind of power that we have given it. That money only matters in certain contexts. And for other contexts, money is completely and totally useless. And I say this because so many of us have missed out on relationships with family. We've missed out on moments with our loved ones. We've missed out on holidays and ruined good relationships, chasing something that has such limited capacity to impact our lives in the ways that truly sustain us, which brings us to bad romance. So money and currency serve a very real function in society. I mean, that is a given. It's how we stock our cupboards. It's how we put roofs over our heads. It's how we take care of our kids and our families, put gas in our car and all of that. But this series is about our relationship with money. And in part two, we are really going to delve into the particulars of how the things I'm about to list out impact our daily lives and our mindset. But I do want to share some indicators. So I want to kind of like leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger Here are some of the indicators that you might have an unhealthy relationship with money. Number one, you constantly worry that you don't have enough. You live in this perpetual state of scarcity. Number two, spending money, especially a large sum, makes you feel guilty and gives you anxiety. Number three, on the flip side, you're, you spend money recklessly. <laughs> like You don't care how much it is. You'd be like, well, $700 gym shoes. Okay. You know, and you know, rent might not get paid that month. So, you know, you spend money recklessly without a budget or any sort of intention. Number four, you have a lot of credit card debt. Okay. Uh, number five, you have financial problems or obligations that you are dodging or refusing to confront. So certain calls that you don't answer, certain letters that kind of get shredded up, don't want to check your mailbox for fear that somebody is coming after you, that sort of thing. Number six, you are judgmental about money and people who have it or those who don't. Or number seven, the ever popular, you are keeping up with the Joneses. Each of these things is problematic because it's a symptom of a deeper issue. 
And without putting money in its proper perspective, which we will do in the next episode, we run the risk of never being able to manage it effectively. Money should not ever tell us what to do. It should never have dominion over us. We should be in control of it. And so many of us are a slave to money or debt in some way, shape or form and feel completely helpless about how to shift that dynamic. Well, I have good news. Last summer, thank you, pandemic, I spent a lot of time working on and healing my relationship with money. And so I will be sharing those insights and resources and corresponding biblical perspectives that got me all the way together. Okay, all the way together. And truth be told, I'm so glad that I did that work because 2021 has been a great year for me financially. I mean, like literally like blessings falling out of the sky. And it's because I needed to remove some mental barriers, some spiritual barriers that were literally blocking my ability to be able to receive financial blessings. And so I was willing to do the work to confront those demons. I will be sharing those demons next week as well. So I will park it here for now. If you have any questions, comments, takeaways, hit me up at Dr. Shante Says, and I will see you next time.